and shall be till I die. What a glorious verse and song. There's one brother in Florida who will regularly post that every Sunday morning for his church. It is the theme, I think, of his ministry, and it's a good one. Let's go to our Lord once more in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. Father, we pray this morning as we gather around, we would remember that redeeming love has been the theme. Lord, that your love has been poured out for us in Christ. That you have tirelessly and continually pursued after us. Even when we rejected you, you pursued us and opened our eyes. You brought us from death to life in Christ by our faith in him. God, we pray, Lord, that as we come to your word this morning, we would remember that truth. That we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And that we shall not forget it. Father, we pray, Lord, not only for our church to remember that this morning, but we pray for our sister church up in Sheboygan, Wisconsin, and their pastor, Philip Lane, there at Grace Baptist Church. Lord, I thank you for this dear brother and just his uh, partnership in, in the gospel with me and with us. Lord, he regularly prays for our church and, and for me, Lord, and just we want to do the same this morning in praying for our dear brother, Philip. God, be with him as he opens your word there at uh, Grace Baptist Church and uh, let your word go forth there and build the saints. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would uh, help them to recall what you have done in Christ for us. And Lord, that others would hear and believe for the first time. God, may you do a mighty work there this morning. Father, we also want to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. Last Sunday, Lord, was uh, International Day of the Persecuted Church. And Father, Lord, this morning, I want us to continue that in praying for our brothers and sisters in Iran. Father, Lord, there is churches there scattered underground in the nation of Iran. Many of these churches are gathering at the risk of their own lives. And Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters. Help them to stand firm in the faith. Help them to continue to press on. Help them to continue to not shrink back from declaring the power of the gospel. God, we pray, Lord, that you would help them to be a witness, even in the midst of suffering, for your glory to go out. Help them to not deny Christ as opposition arises, but help them more boldly declare that Christ is King. No other ruler or government. Christ and Christ alone is king. Help our brothers and sisters to use that to drive them in the mission that you have given to the local church to make disciples. God, help them to stand firm. God, we also want to pray this morning for our church. We pray Lord, that that same reminder would be remembered here. Lord, as we look at the Lord's Supper, as we look at the final hours of Jesus' life, Lord, that we would remember the extent of which Christ died for us. That it would stir our faith. 
to greater depths and heights. God, would you do this mighty work? Would you work through me in this? Help me to simply get out of the way to recall your word and to preach your truth. Help a tired, weary dad of a newborn through this so that you all the more can be exalted and lifted on high. Father, we thank you and ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Make sure this is on recording. There we go. You all know by now I love sports. I worked in sports for a long time. It's part of me. I can't deny it no matter how much I've tried. And I've tried through the years to let some of my love for sports go. But one of the greatest things about sports is the life lessons it teaches. Even just yesterday, watching college football, it was upset after upset, unsurprised victory, or surprise victory after surprise victory. Kansas beat Texas, 1-8. and eight. Kansas beat almighty Texas. What about that, you fake UT? Go Vols. We didn't do so hot either, but we did what was expected of us. We lost to the number one team. Others had close calls of games they shouldn't have. Mighty Florida Gators struggled against lowly Samford, who has almost 20 scholarships less than Florida. Samford gave them all they wanted. It shocked many watching that game. Surprise after surprise. Now, if you can't relate to the sports theme of, of surprises, think about when you were in school and who the teacher called on to help her with the task. You look and be like, why them? Why didn't I get picked? Why them? They're like, why would you want to trouble with that mean child? Or look at them, goody old two-shoes. No surprise there, maybe. Maybe I'm talking about some of us present in the room. But anyways, surprises happen. And as those surprises come, they shock us. They send shockwaves through our spines and through our minds as those surprises come about. And this morning's no different as we open up the Gospel of Mark to Mark 14, 1 through 25. In Mark, we're going to see the surprising, the shocking commendation of one unnamed woman in Mark's gospel, right in the middle of a sandwich. A sandwich of the religious leaders rejecting Jesus and making their final ploy. How do we arrest him and kill him? And one disciples, one who walked closely with him, his betrayal of his closest ally, his closest friend, one who poured into him and taught him. This should surprise us as we read. But before we read, I want to give a little uh, help as we read Mark 14. I agonized over the last two weeks, really, in how to break Mark 14 up. And here's why. Mark 14 is a place where Mark not only does a marking sandwich like we've looked at before, where one text is sandwiched between two ends trying to make the whole of the story. This is all of Mark 14. It's sandwich after sandwich after sandwich. Each text is doing almost double duty, double work. There's meaning on both before and after the text. We're going to see that even in where we end off today. It's not where I'd planned to end, but it makes more sense in how the text is broken up. 
because it's right in the middle of another Marquine sandwich. So as we read Mark 14 this morning, try and keep that in mind as I read and you follow along. The text is doing multiple things here. It's looking forward and backwards at what has just happened and what is about to happen. So let that shape us as we study this this morning. So hear the word of the Lord from Mark 14, beginning in verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of, the, of unleavened bread. And the chief priest and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, Wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared for the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for the man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup when he had given thanks to he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Before I even give the main point, I want us to look here quickly at these sandwiches. 
In verses 1 or 2, we saw, uh, as I said, this is full of sandwich after sandwich of double meaning. We have the the scribes and the chief priests wanting to betray Jesus. Then, right after that, it turns its attention to this unnamed woman, according to Mark's gospel. But right after that, the means of that betrayal is given in Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. So sandwiched in, in both of these is the act of betrayal, but between is that of a faithful woman, a woman who does a beautiful thing. Then there's another sandwich right after it tells of Judas's betrayal. It, it gives Jesus giving directions of what the disciples are to do in preparing the Passover. He says, this is what you're to go and do, and they go and find exactly what he said. Then he comes back to the reality Here, one of you are going to betray me. I know it. Not only is it going to happen, and are we told as readers, but Jesus acknowledges this is going to happen. So here's another Marquean sandwich. It's the the roast beef of the good Arby's sandwich. They're in between. But then there's another sandwich. Between that of of one betrayals uh, and the Lord's Supper, on the other side of the Lord's Supper, which we'll look at next week, we see that of all the disciples are going to abandon Jesus. And then another, and another, and another. So keep that in mind as we look through the text and unfold it today. Lots going on here. But I hope I can sum it up well for us in this main idea. The main idea, I think, of Mark 14, 1 through 25, is this. Jesus willingly came to lay down his life as the Passover lamb to establish a new covenant with all who would believe in him. Simple, straightforward. Jesus willingly came to lay down his life as the Passover lamb to establish a new covenant with all who would believe in him. And we're going to look at this in three points. Point number one, a woeful betrayal. Point number two, a beautiful act. And point number three, a new covenant. Sorry, too much coffee this morning and not enough water. I'll leave you to put together why. Point number one, a woeful betrayal. Mark 14, verse 21. I just want to read this again here. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man has betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Here in the midst of all of this, we have to look and acknowledge at the woeful betrayal of Judas. One of the twelve who turned against Jesus. He deceived him. He handed him over. But there's also something else going on here. It's not just that Judas betrays Jesus, and that's it, that. The Son of Man betrayed, and he, he was wronged. This is where we begin to lose the gospel if we're not careful. If we think Jesus was just simply betrayed and handed over, we think injustice was done to him. No, no, no. Opposition did not come against Christ. If it did, he is not king. He is not the conqueror. He is not the Christus victor. He is a victim of injustice. And yet, what does it say there in verse 21? For the Son of Man goes as it is written. 
Before we can understand the depth of the betrayal, we must first consider the willingness of the one who was betrayed. Jesus willingly went to the cross. He willingly went into the hands of those that would betray him. Why? Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. <laughs> Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. Jesus willingly went to be betrayed into the hands of sinners because of us. To Oh, we'll go to the pulpit, Mike. Sorry about that. Anyways, where was I? Redeeming love has been my theme, and it shall be till I die. The disciples forgot this aspect. Over and over again, they've continued to struggle with the fact that Jesus is coming to die. They miss it. But Jesus here, he knows it. He teaches on it over and over again. And that's why the double duty of this text is so important. Because as we see there in Mark 14, 10 and 11 here, Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. Keep in mind as we're reading this, this is not being known or, or told to the disciples. This is being happening in secret. Judas goes in secret to the scribes to betray Jesus. At the same time, right before he goes to this betrayal, a woman comes and anoints him for burial. But then right after that, Jesus comes and tells the disciples, here's exactly what you're going to find as you go in and prepare for this Passover feast. And they go and they find it exactly as he said. All of this coming off the heels of what we read in Mark 13 of Jesus saying the Son of Man does not know when the end may come. Seems like Jesus knows a lot, doesn't it? He chose not to know when the end will come, but he knows exactly what is to come. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was all knowing about what he was walking into. He willingly did it. He did not stumble into it. He was not betrayed over by injustice. He willingly went for our sake. For our sake he went. But all of this, we must understand, does not give us the freedom to do as we want. Just because God is sovereign over every aspect of human life doesn't give us a freedom and license to sin so that grace may abound all the more, as Romans goes on to tell us. In fact, the sovereignty of God, that is God ruling over every aspect of human life, isn't to hinder us from obedience, it is to drive and fuel that obedience. When we understand here that God was sovereign over this, the woefulness serves as now a warning. A warning to you. A warning to me. It serves to point us back to Jesus himself, our ongoing desperate need of him. Because who was Judas? Who was the one who betrayed the Son of Man? Was he not one of his closest followers? He was one of the twelve who did everything with Jesus. 
He was there in the most private moments with Jesus in his ministry. And yet he betrayed him. He walked with Jesus. He ate with Jesus. He heard Jesus pray. And yet he betrayed the Son of Man. And yet woeful to him. Even as Jesus willingly went, woe to the man who would betray him. Brothers and sisters, just because we come to church week in after week out, just because we're involved in all kinds of religious activity and religious events throughout the week, just because we have lots of times we're praying with others, it doesn't mark us as faithful. The object of our faith does. The religious leaders in Judas were marked by religious tasks and events. They were marked by so-called religiosity, if that's even a term. I'm making it up as I go. They, they had all of this religious activity there before them. They were all about it. And this is what they wanted to hold onto. The religious leaders, the reason they're upset is because Jesus is going against status quo. They want Israel free. They want the Romans thrown out so that they can go back to the way things used to be. And what did they do? They betrayed the Son of Man. Judas, for the sum of money, goes and betrays Jesus into their hands. He who once walked with Jesus becomes his enemy. Our lives in the church are not what mark us. Therefore, we need to hear this warning clearly. We need to see, yes, God is sovereign over everything. That does not give us the freedom to do as we please and to give in to sin, to live in sin. It calls us all the more to godliness and holiness and holding on to Jesus, seeing who he truly is, the king of kings. Brothers and sisters, many have prayed prayers and walked an aisle for their salvation. But unless we realize Jesus as king and Lord, we miss the gospel. The religious leaders and Judas were perfectly happy following Jesus as long as they called the shots, as long as they made the decisions, as long as it went according to how they thought it should be. Don't confuse those things with actually submitting to the King of glory. Submit to Him lest the woe be given to us who have sat in pews and failed to surrender to Jesus. We need to wake up and hear that call, the call to bow our knee to Jesus and surrender all we have to him. Let the woefulness here of this betrayal serve as a great warning, driving us all the more to faithfulness and holiness, all the more to giving glory to God. And why is all this shared? Why is these warnings shared? Why is it shared that Jesus willingly went? 
because of this. One commentator says, And though it was of no advantage to the disciples to be informed at that time of the obedience which he was rendering to the Father, yet afterwards this doctrine tended in no small degree to the edification of their faith. In like manner, it is of singular utility to us at the present day because we behold as in bright mirror the voluntary sacrifice by which all the transgressions of the world were blotted out in contemplating the Son of God advancing with cheerfulness and courage to death. We already behold him victorious over death. We need to understand this woeful warning and the willingness of the Savior because this is what drives us in our obedience. It drives us to that faithfulness. It drives us to see the willingness of the King. Brothers and sisters, let us behold his willingness to go and to suffer and die. And let that drive us to faithful and joyful obedience instead of begrudgingly to duty. Now, in contrast to that is where we turn in our second point, a beautiful act. Look with me back again at verse 3. Here we have a, a woman, an unnamed woman here in, according to Mark's gospel. While we don't know her name in Mark's, John gives us in his gospel a clue who this is. It's Mary, the sister of Lazarus, the one raised from the dead. Mary comes and anoints Jesus with this oil, this nard. But notice the descriptors of this nard. Very expensive. If you've got a more literal translation, it says 300 denarii. I know that NIV, and I'm not sure what others, actually translate it as the idea of over a year's wages. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money that this woman, Mary, could have sold this for. And it gets her ridiculed by those around her, by the disciples themselves. Most likely Judah starting it. But nonetheless, many disciples accuse her. In fact, they are furious at her because of this seemingly waste of money. But yet Mary comes and is commended by the Lord. But why? Why does she endure this ridicule? Why is she commended by the Lord to do a beautiful thing? Why? Should, should she not have given money to the poor? That's not what the text is about. Yes, we need to, to give and, and do mercy ministry. We need to serve those less fortunate. Jesus tells us even that if we feed those less fortunate, if we give them something to drink, we do it unto him. And if we neglect doing so, we neglect him. Those are good things, but that's not the point of what Mary is doing, and that's not the point we need to take away here. It's nothing to do about the poor. Jesus actually goes on to tell the disciples, the poor will always be with them, but not him. Look what he, look what he goes on to say there, beginning in verse 4, um, or verse 5. For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. 
Jesus not only steps up and rebukes the disciples, he gets between the disciples and Mary, standing up for her in the gap, interceding for her, and then commending her. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing. Now, I, I know no one in this room has ever thought or, or even said out loud, why isn't so-and-so more involved in, let's pick on shoebox ministry for a moment, shoebox ministry. Why is somebody not more involved in Sunday nights or, or Wednesday night prayers? Or why is somebody not more involved in Bible studies or helping out in mercy ministry events? None of us have ever thought of that uh, again about anyone. Surely not. If you're sitting here and thinking that, brothers and sisters, your hearts and your words betray you. We've all been guilty of that. We're so quick to judge and put down one another instead of seeing the heart and motive behind something because it doesn't look how we would do it. Brothers and sisters, we need to be aware of that heart because now we need to see the beauty of what she actually did. The disciples got it wrong. This is what she came to do in anointing him. And this is why it's commended by Jesus. Because she did what she could. And this language is very similar to that that we found just a few chapters ago in, in Mark chapter 12 of the lady who gave the two coins. She gave her two coins and she gave more than all around her because she gave what she could. Jesus uses that same language here in verse 7. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Mary gave what she could to Jesus. She gave all that she could. The amount doesn't matter. Whether it's two coins or a year's wages, both happen out of seeing the unsurpassing worth of Jesus, that He was worth everything. Brothers and sisters, let me ask this question. How many of us would reconsider how much energy and effort and finances and joy we give to the service of the King if we just for a moment stopped a little bit more and considered how worthy He is of such devotion. Here Mary comes into a room she was not intended to do, to enter. She interrupted a meal that was not for her. She didn't care what was thought of her. She came and poured this oil, this expensive oil, because she saw the unsurpassing worth of Jesus. And she anointed Him. And she was commended by her act of faith. Not her act of duty, but her act of faith. There is no description throughout the Gospels that says Mary saw a vision and was told to go and do this. She gave it out of the overflow and willingness of her own heart because of the worth that Jesus was. Brothers and sisters, let's see the beautiful act of Mary and let's do the same. Let's give our lives to Jesus because of seeing His unsurpassing worth. 
the beauty of who he is and what he's done. It must fuel our duty and it must fuel our lives and our worship of him. Because if anything else fuels it, we will miss the point. And woe to us, as it was to Judas. But why? That's where we turn in our third and final point this morning. A new covenant. Here, Jesus has been teaching, even through these events, that He is sovereign. He knows what's coming. He willingly was going to the cross. Though He was betrayed, He still went. Woe to those that betray Him. Woe to those that fail to see Him and submit to Him. We've seen that of a faithful act. We've seen that Mary acted faithfully, serving as a great example. But what fuels all of this? It's more than just Jesus' willingness. It's that of a new covenant that is marked in His blood. Look with me at Mark 14, verse 22 through 25 again. It says, And as they were eating, He took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now I forgot to look at, at all the subheadings uh, in the different translations. If you've got an ESV like mine above these verses, it says the institution of the Lord's Supper. While that's a helpful, it's not scriptural. The, the, this has no meaning of actually what the text is doing. This is more of just, oh, here's how we do the Lord's Supper. It's more than that. It tells us the significance of this covenant and just what Jesus has done and how He has sealed this new covenant with His own blood. Just, just like we have already read from Exodus 12 this morning of the first Passover in which the, the blood of the lambs was put on the doorpost of these houses in order for God to pass over the firstborn, sparing them. A new and better Passover lamb has come in the blood of Jesus. Jesus goes willingly to the cross to shed His own blood, to pour it out so that we sinners may put it on the doorpost, not of our houses, but of our hearts. This blood covers our sins, and Jesus passes over those sins as we rest in that blood. Something much greater than the first Passover is established here. A sealing promise, not by ink, not even by writing it in the tablet of stones, but by His own blood, Jesus seals this new covenant. He pours His life out to save sinners. He pours it out to save us. Brothers and sisters, that second song we, we sang this morning, All My Hope, there was one line I, I did not think through properly before we sang it this morning. 
Because there's one line talking about in the sense of, uh, I'm glad my past is behind me. The problem with that line is this. Despite our past, Jesus is with us. Despite our past, Jesus has shed His own blood to purchase us, to free us. Yes, we're forgiven, but it's in spite of that past. Brothers and sisters, we need to see what we really were in the blood of the new covenant. The blood that Jesus shed for wicked sinners such as us. Because at some point or another, before we came to Christ, we have all betrayed Jesus. We've all neglected Him. We've all uh, besieged His name. We've all spoken illy of Him. We've all not followed. And yet, despite it all, Jesus shed His own blood for us. That all who would believe in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's see the beauty of this new covenant. The covenant of the Lamb that was slain for us, that was shed for us, that was poured out for us. And then every time we take the Lord's Supper, remembering that. You know, every year still, for those that of Jewish tradition, a Passover meal is celebrated. They take this meal, remembering what God had done in delivering them out of Egypt. And when we take of the Lord's Supper, We're doing the same. We're remembering what Jesus has done for us on the cross. When we take that cup, when we take that bread, as stale as it may be, it's remembering who Jesus is and what He's done. We take it to remind us of this new covenant. That we are under the blood of the Lamb and therefore nothing, nothing can snatch us away. Because of His blood being shed, He has washed us clean. He has made our sins like scarlet, as white as snow. Jesus has pursued us in this way. Brothers and sisters, will we allow the new covenant of the blood of the Lamb drive us to greater obedience and faithfulness? Will we be on guard and be watchful that we do not simply act out of religiosity, but out of faithfulness and devotion to Jesus, out of an overflowing love for Him. That's our call this morning. That is our call. And if you're here and you have yet to believe, know that woe is you if you fail to turn and repent and trust in Jesus. Because a day is coming in which every heart will be hardened and sin if they fail to turn and trust in Jesus. A day in which they will be handed over fully to Satan, as Judas was, in which he denied Jesus once and for all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We pray, Lord, that as we consider these things this morning and this week, Lord, that you would help us to marvel at Jesus. That we would see that our salvation is in Him and Him alone. And that by His blood, we are washed clean. God, help that to drive us to greater faithfulness, to greater worship. 
Help us to love you more because we see the way in which you have pursued us where the Son of Man willingly goes to be betrayed for the sake of redeeming us. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. May we leave singing that truth today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.